In the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And for the next 2,000 years and still today, Christians have followed this advice and used music and song as a form of worship. The word hymn comes from the Greek word hymnos, which means a song of praise. And originally, these hymns were written in honor of the Greek gods. Hymnody, which is a singing or composition of hymns, has evolved over the centuries and has been affected many times by new thinking and development of religious beliefs. Throughout the history of the church, whenever there has been a renewal or revival, new songs of worship have been written. Back in the Middle Ages, hymns developed in the form of Gregorian chants, or plain songs, if you will, and they were sung in Latin, most often by monotastic choirs. And in the 16th century, churchgoers were given much greater access to hymns as a result of the invention of the printing press and the influential teachings of the German theologian Martin Luther, who very much so encouraged people to gather and sing together in congregations as a form of worship. In England, the nonconformist minister Isaac Watts began a transformation of congregational singing. Watts believed strongly that hymns should express the religious feelings of the people that sang them, and he became a prolific writer of such hymns. Watts has been described as the liberator of English hymnody, and his songs have moved people away from simply singing Old Testament psalms and inspired people to sing from their heart with great faith and understanding. In the same period, another significant movement affected the hymns of the church. That was the Methodist movement led by John Wesley. Wesley, and especially his brother Charles Wesley, used simple rhythms and singable melodies to help congregations sing. They wrote many of our most well-known hymns that are still sang in churches across the world today. And in the late 19th century, a new style of hymnody known as gospel emerged. These songs were usually characterized by a strong lead vocal and exciting harmonies and were a great influence on later contemporary worships worldwide as well as contemporary country, pop, and rock music. The 20th and 21st centuries have seen an explosion of new hymn writers and approaches. The old texts have been refreshed by new songs and lots more contemporary hymns have sprung up. In the non-traditional church movement, there has been a move away from the previous style of congregational singing to worship led by just one singer or a worship band. Instrumentation has been added and become more popular in musical styles and become much freer. The church today is richer than ever in musical resources and continues to bring congregations together through the singing of songs. Today, we will take a look at some of these most popular traditional gospel songs as well as the stories behind those that wrote and sing them. So get out your hymn books and turn to page 77 because this is That One Show, Episode 9, Give Me That Old Time Religion. I Saw the Light is a traditional country and gospel song that was written by Hank Williams Sr. Williams was inspired to write this song while he was returning from a concert when he heard a remark his mother made just as they were arriving in Montgomery, Alabama. He recorded I Saw the Light during his first session for MGM Records and released it back in September of 1948. 
Hank's version did not enjoy major success during its initial release, but eventually it has become one of the most popular songs and the closing number at many of his live shows before his death. It has went on to be covered by countless acts over the years and has become a country and a gospel standard. I Saw the Light was not a commercial success, as we said, upon its initial release, but it can still be found in churches all across the nation today and is one of the more popular songs to be sung by congregations all these years later. I Saw the Light is, was named by all music as Hank Williams' finest song, and it was also ranked by CMT as number one in the 20 greatest songs of faith back in 2005. In 2015, a musical biopic starring Tom Hiddleston of Loki fame as Hank Williams Sr. was actually called I Saw the Light. This is not the last we will hear of Hank Sr. in this episode, but I have to think that and I have to wonder just how many people of the countless people over the years and today stand up in church and sing I Saw the Light, know that it was actually written by Hank Williams. And given his history with addiction and alcohol abuse, how many of these churches that sing Hank's song today would actually make someone like him, who is going through personal battles with addiction, welcome through their doors? Here is a little bit of the all-time classic Hank Williams song, I Saw the Light. Trains have always been a popular subject matter of all genres of music, especially country, western, and gospel. Back in the day, Boxcar Willie was able to recreate the perfect sound of a train whistling with just his own vocal style in his train medley of songs. And John Loudermilk wrote the song Blue Train for those of us that are feeling down and out as a result of heartbreak. More recently, Josh Turner posed a warning to us all to not be tempted to travel on that long black train because its only destination is out in the middle of nowhere. The great Roy Acuff recorded what is considered one of the all-time great gospel songs about a train that is bound for the place known as glory, hence its title, That Glory Bound Train. This song encourages everyone to make the necessary preparations for that trip, and the early purchase of a ticket is advised to ensure you have yourself a seat. The song consists of four lines and a chorus sung after each line. Acuff first recorded this song back in 1961, and it has appeared on the album of the same name. It has later went on to be recorded and released on a bunch of different albums for a bunch of different singers, including Kitty Wells and Rose Maddox. Here is a song that 60 years later is still sung in churches all throughout Appalachia and beyond. Roy Acuff with that glory bound train. And listen, won't you, brother, have you heard or don't you know? There's a train that's bound for glory. Will you ride it when it goes? Has your ticket yet been purchased for that glory bound train? Oh, will you ride that train? Will you ride that train? Will you ride that train glory by and by? Have you made all preparations, reservations all complete? Y'all know what a fan I am of the local honeys. My favorite Kentucky duo, 
comprised of Linda, Jean, and Montana, and I cannot in good conscience do an entire episode about traditional gospel music without featuring them, and I will do so now. The local honeys released their debut album called Little Girls Acting Like Men back in 2017, and this album is recorded and filled with both original songs such as Cigarette Trees and the Beataville Bomber, as well as their take on traditional folk and gospel songs such as Walk Around My Bedside Lord and their absolutely gorgeous rendition of Glory Land that was recorded with just sparse, almost non-existent instrumentation that fully allows their powerful vocals to be on full display. Here are the local honeys with their take on the classic song, Glory Land. Weep not, friends, I'm going home. Up there we'll die no more. No coffins will be made up there. No graves on that bright shore. The lame will walk in glory land. We Shall Be Reunited was written by Newton S. Sitzlar in October of 1928 and still today is sung in church congregations all around. Unfortunately, Sitzlar died just a few months after writing the lyrics to We Shall Be Reunited, so he never lived long enough to see his song's popularity. Two years after they released their debut album, Little Girls Acting Like Men, the local honeys recorded and released an album comprised entirely of traditional gospel songs appropriately titled The Local Honeys Sing the Gospel. Among the fine recordings on this album is their version of We Shall Be Reunited. Singer Sam Cooke was killed on December 11th back in 1964 at the young age of 33 at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, California. Answering separate reports of a shooting and a kidnapping at that same motel the same evening, the Los Angeles police found Cooke's body. He had been killed by a gunshot wound to the chest, which was later determined to have actually pierced his heart. The manager of the motel, Bertha Franklin, claimed to have shot him in self-defense, and her account was immediately disputed by Cook's friends and acquaintances that were staying in the same motel. The owner of the motel, Evelyn Carr, said she had been on the telephone with Franklin at the time of the shooting. Carr said she overheard Cook's intrusion and the ensuing conflict, as well as the gunfiring, so she immediately called police. The police record states that Franklin fatally shot Cook, who had checked in just earlier in the evening. Franklin said that Cook had knocked on her door, shouting, Where's the girl? in reference to Eliza Boyer, a woman who had actually accompanied Cook to the motel that night, and who had actually called police from a telephone booth near the motel just a few minutes before Carr called them. Franklin shouted back that there was no one in her office except herself, but an enraged Cook allegedly did not believe her and forced his way into the office. He was allegedly naked except for one shoe and a sports coat. Allegedly, Cook grabbed her and demanded to know the woman's whereabouts. And according to Franklin, she grappled with Cook for a few moments and the two of them fell to the floor. She then got up and ran to retrieve a gun hidden behind her desk. She states that she then fired at Cook in self-defense because she feared for her life. Now, Cook was struck once in his torso. And according to Franklin, he exclaimed, Lady, you have done shot me in a tone that expressed bewilderment rather than anger. 
and before advancing on her again, even after he had been shot. She states that Cook hit her head with a broomstick, and then he finally fell to the floor and died. The coroner's report was convened to investigate this incident, and Boyle told police that she had first met Cook earlier in the evening, and they went on to spend the rest of the day in his company. She stated that after they left a local nightclub together, she had repeatedly requested that he take her home, but it appeared he was drunk and drove her against her will to the motel to have sex. As they sped down the Harbor Freeway, Boyle noted that there were multiple hotels and motel motor courts along the route, but Cook and her ended up at the hacienda that night that was a black-owned business in south-central Los Angeles at that time. Boyle noted that Cook's familiarity with the layout as if he had been here before. And she said once, in one of the motel rooms, Cook physically forced her onto the bed and stripped her to her panties. She said she was sure he was going to rape her. Cook allowed her to use the bathroom from which he attempted an escape, but found that there was no windows other than one that was firmly shut. And according to her, she returned to the main room where Cook continued to make advances onto her. And when she went to use the bathroom, she quickly grabbed her clothes and ran from the room and down the hall. She said in her hurry to get away, she also scooped up most of Cook's clothing on accident. That would explain why he allegedly appeared only in a one shoe and his jacket later at the manager's office. She herself said she ran to this manager's office and knocked on the door seeking help. However, the manager took too long to respond, so she just fled from the motel, leaving the door open. She said then she put her clothes back on and hid Cook's clothing in some bushes nearby and went to a telephone booth where she called the police. Now, Boyle's story is the only account of what happened between her and Cook that night because Cook would not live to tell his side of the story. And it must be noted here that her story has long been called into question because of the inconsistencies between her version of events and details reported by diners at the Martini's restaurant where Cook dined and drank earlier in the evening. Those accounts suggest that Boyle may have gone willingly to the motel with Cook, then slipped out of the room with his clothing in an attempt to rob him rather than escaping from a possible rape. Sam Cook was reportedly carrying at the time a large amount of money that he flashed around at the restaurant earlier that evening according to employees at that restaurant as well as patrons. However, a search of Boyle's purse by police revealed nothing except a $20 bill and a search of Cook's Ferrari found only a money clip with just over $100 as well as just a few loose coins in his ashtray. Now, questions about Boyle's role were beyond the scope of the inquest and the purpose of which was only to establish the circumstances of Franklin's role in the shooting. Boyle's leaving the motel room with almost all of Cook's clothing and the fact that tests show Cook was inebriated at the time of his death provide a plausible explanation to the inquest jurors on the grand jury for Cook's bizarre behavior and state of undress. In addition... Carr's testimony corroborated Franklin's version of offense, and because both Boyle and Franklin later passed polygraph tests, the jury ultimately accepted Franklin's explanation and returned a verdict of justifiable homicide. And with the verdict, authorities officially closed the case on Sam Cooke's death. However, for years after, many people have rejected Boyle's version of the events that transpired that night as well as those given by Franklin and Carr. They believe that there was actually a conspiracy to commit murder of Cook and that the murder took place in some manner entirely different that night from the official accounts. On the perceived lack of an investigation, Cook's very close friend at the time, the one and only Muhammad Ali stated if Cook had been Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, or even Ricky Nelson, the FBI would have done a thorough investigation. And singer Eddie James viewed Cook's body before the funeral 
and she questioned the accuracy of the official version of the events. She wrote that the injuries she observed were well beyond the official account of Cook having fought Franklin alone and stated that Cook was so badly beaten that his head was nearly separated from his shoulders and his hands were broken and crushed and his nose mangled. In Cook's brief but brilliant life, he wrote many classic songs, including Touch the Hem of His Garment, which in the years since his passing has become still today a modern-day gospel standard. Precious Memories was written in 1925 by J.B.F. Wright. This song has been performed and recorded by a collective and large group of recording artists over the last 100 plus years, including Tammy Wynette, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, Johnny Cash, Emmylou Harris, Alan Jackson, Jim Reeves, Patty Page, Dolly Parton, and even the great Bob Dylan. For you Walking Dead fans, a cover of this song by the Stanley Brothers can be heard on Rick Grimes' radio at the beginning of the premiere episode of the fourth season entitled 30 Days Without an Accident. And Susan Ray's cover was in the opening and closing credits of Paul Schrader's 1979 crime drama movie, Hardcore. Here is one of my particular favorite versions of Precious Memories, outside of that of my great grannies, as well as my grandma Corey's versions, that they sang on their front porches and that I heard as a young boy. Here is Waylon Jennings with Precious Memories from back in 1976. As I pondered, oh, grows fonder, precious sacred scenes unfold. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Taking upon this verse, Robert Lowry wrote nothing but the blood of Jesus back in 1876. This song elaborates on the idea of that verse found in Hebrews, repeatedly stating that nothing but the blood of Jesus can purify us. The third stanza of the song acknowledges that not of good that I have done can save me, and as the hymn is sung, it contemplates the significance of sin in separating us from God, as well as the great value of Jesus' life, as well as his death on the cross, the end and ultimately is what forgives us of our sins. Here is the great Randy Travis singing the classic hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. I can wash away my sins Nothing but the blood of Jesus What can make me whole again Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is that flow That makes me white as snow Unclouded Day also known as Unclouded Day, is a gospel song that was written by Josiah Kelly Alwood all the way back in 1879. And like many of the songs we've already discussed, has become a gospel standard over the years and has been recorded by many artists 
including the Staple Singers in 1956, with a version that Bob Dylan stated was the most mysterious song he ever heard. Al Wood related a story about the event that inspired this song in an interview. He stated it was a balmy night back in August of 1879 when he was returning from a debate in Spring Hill, Ohio to his home in Morakai, Michigan. It was about one o'clock in the morning and he stated he saw a beautiful rainbow north by northwest up against a dense black nimbus cloud and the sky was all perfectly clear except this rainbow and one dark cloud that covered the horizon. This phenomenon was entirely new to him and his nerves refreshed by the balmy air and the lovely night inspired him to sit down and write Uncloudy Day. Here he is, the great Kentucky legend Loretta Lynn with her version of Uncloudy Day. Ain't No Grave is a traditional American gospel song that has maybe one of the greatest origin stories in the history of music. Back in 1934, 12-year-old Claude Eli was very sick with tuberculosis and was actually bedridden for some time. One evening, his family gathered around his bedside as he slept, held hands, and began to pray for his healing. At the end of the prayer, Eli opened his eyes for the first time in days and immediately began to sing the words to what would later become the song, Ain't No Grave Gonna Hold My Body Down. The first known recording of this song was released in 1942 by Bozzy Strudevant. A very well-known version of the song by Sister Rosetta Thorpe that was reworked as a African-American gospel standard with a slower, drawn-out chorus accompanied by a barrel house piano was released back in 1947. The version we will play for you today is by Johnny Cash. It was recorded in September 2003, just a few months before Johnny Cash's death. It sat on the shelf for almost seven years, but eventually was released in February of 2010 as part of a posthumous album called American Six Ain't No Grave. Here is a bit of Johnny Cash's version of Ain't No Grave Gonna Hold My Body Down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down when I hear that trumpet sound, I'm gonna rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, look way down the river, and what do you think I see? I see a band of angels, and they're coming at The actual author of the gospel hymn, Just a Closer Walk With Thee, is unknown still today. There is some evidence that strongly suggests it was written in a Southern African-American church prior to the Civil War. There are some African-American histories that recall slaves singing as they worked in the fields a song about walking by the Lord's side. And Horace Boyer cites a story that repudiates this claim stating on a trip from Kansas City to Chicago, composer Kenneth Morris exited the train at a stop to get some fresh air and heard one of the station porters singing a song. He paid little attention at first, but after he reboarded the train, this song remained with him and became so prominent in his mind 
that at the next stop, he left the train again, took another train back to that earlier station just to ask the porter to sing that song for him one more time. Morse wrote down the words and music and published the song Just a Closer Walk With Thee that year, which was 1940, adding a few lyrics of his own to help provide more breadth. Within two years, the song became a standard in gospel music and eventually jazz, and it then moved into the realm of American folk music that was sung by many artists over the years, including my favorite, the Avent Brothers. And here they are with their version of Just a Closer Walk with Thee. I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus keeps me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk, dear Lord. George Bernard was a native of Youngstown, Ohio. And he and his wife were a prominent part of the Methodist Church. As a Methodist evangelist, Bernard wrote the first verse of the old rocky cross one day in Albion, Michigan back in 1912 as a response to the ridicule that he had received at a revival meeting earlier that day. Bernard traveled with Ed E. Myers from Chicago to Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, where they held evangelistic meetings at the Friends Church from December the 29th, 1912 to January 12th, 1913. During the meetings, Reverend George Bernard finished the song, The Old Rugged Cross, and on the last night of the meeting, Bernard and Mears performed it as a duet before a full house with Pearl Berg on organ. Here is the one and only George Jones singing the old rugged cross. Dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain So I'll cherish the old rugged The Wayfaring Stranger, also known as Poor Wayfaring Stranger, and I Am a Poor Wayfaring Stranger, is a well-known American folk gospel song that originated back in the early 19th century. It is a song about a plaintive soul that is on this journey through life. As with most folk songs, many variations of the lyrics and many different versions have been recorded by popular singers over the years According to the book, The Makers of the Sacred Heart by David Warren Steele and Richard Hoolan, the lyrics to this song were published back in 1858 in Joseph Beaver's Christian Songster, which was a collection of popular hymns and spiritual songs of that time. Steele and Hewland suggest the song was derived from an 1816 German language hymn E Kaban Janur Gost Uf Erden by Isaac Newswinder. During and for several years after the American Civil War, the lyrics were known as the Liddy Prison Hymn. This was because the converted to a notorious Confederate prison in Richmond, Virginia, was known for its adverse conditions and its high death rate among inmates. It has been believed that the dying soldier had authored the song to comfort a fellow soldier of his that was disabled. But this is actually not the case since it has been published several, actually been published several years before the Civil War even began in 1858 and many years before the Levy Prison was put into service, which was 1862. Members of the Western Writers of America chose the Wayfaring Stranger, 
as the number one Western song of all time. Here is one of my personal favorite renditions of Wayfaring Stranger as sung by Rion Giddens. Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior is a 19th century American gospel hymn that was written by Fanny Crosby back in 1868 and was later set to music composed by William H. Doan in 1870. Now, upon my research for today's episode, I discovered that hip-hop artist M.C. Hammer recorded and released his version of this hymn, retitled Do Not Pass Me By, on his 1991 album, Too Legit to Quit. Now, I obviously had to hear his version for myself when I discovered this news, and I'm here to report that some things cannot be unseen, and likewise, some things cannot be unheard. So I will not subject you all with Hammer's version today, and I will tell you that if I did, Hammer would definitely hurt you. Instead, I will give you Katie Kennard's gorgeous version of Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. I want to take a moment before continuing to thank a few people. First, I want to thank Lee Fink and Drunkle Bruin for being a big supporter of this show and for the brand new microphone. If you folks think I have sound better on today's show as well as last time, thank Lee Fink and Drunkle Bruin for ponying up and buying a microphone actually worth using. Also, I want to thank Harold, Mike, and Brian Michael who are the first people to become Patreons of this show on Patreon. They will be getting exclusive content on Patreon, such as bonus episodes each month, with the first one dropping in a couple weeks. If you would like to join them and become a patron of the show, just head over to Patreon, a link in today's show notes, and for only $5 a month, you can get exclusive content, including at least one bonus episode per month. We will take a very brief break now, but stay tuned because we do have a bunch of more great gospel hymns to talk about, including a modern-day classic by the one and only Tom T. Hall. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. Matthew chapter seven, verses three, four, and five. I do not personally remember a time in which I haven't been in a church. Over the years, my late relationship with God has evolved into one that is personal and just between us. I am not perfect by any means, but I do believe in my heart of hearts that it is not my place to tell others what to believe or how to worship. A thought that the great Kentuckian Tom T. All perfectly captured in his song, Me and Jesus. Released back in 1972 and recorded featuring the backing vocals from the Mount Pisgah United Methodist Church me and Jesus beautifully illustrates that our relationship with Jesus is just that, our relationship with Jesus, and is no one else's business. Because me and Jesus, we have our own thing going, 
and we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. Amen, Brother Tom. Amen. Well, me and Jesus got our own thing going. The second song that we will talk about today that was written by the great Hank Williams singer is The Old Country Church. This is a song about a man singing and remembering his childhood days when he used to go to church with his family and his friends. He remembers how they gathered together to praise the Lord. And since he started going to church as a young boy, he carried it all the way with him throughout his entire life until he was old. He prayed to the Lord and believed that Jesus would bless us if only we ask him. He wished that the world would learn to pray because honestly praying heals and helps at the same time. Do you remember the very first time you learned to pray or the very first time you went to church? How did you feel? What did you say? When kids go to church, they usually get bored, therefore not understanding anything at all and they end up making random noises or sometimes even fall asleep during the sermon, especially if it is a lengthy one by a pastor that enjoys the sound of his own voice. Perhaps the best way to keep kids interested in going to church or knowing Jesus is to make activities that will stimulate their interest rather than saying things that they actually are not even old enough to understand. Children will only be interested in things that they see and that they hear, just like the character in this song. Hank seemed to be introduced to church in a good way that he actually remembered and liked it as an adult. He had beautiful memories that he mentions in the song. His time with his family and his friends praising God also contributed to making him enjoy going to church. If we do this, with our kids, they will certainly enjoy going to church and later in life may very well have fond memories of it. Here is a brand new recording of the Hank Williams classic Old Country Church by Brent Cobb. There's a place dear to me where I'm longing to be with my friends at the old country church that with mother we win and our Sundays were spent with our friends. Prior to writing and recording this episode, I put out on my social media pages a question to those that like to listen to this song and simply asked them what their favorite gospel hymn was. And I do believe the song that was named most is Sweet Beulah Land, which is a southern gospel song written by Square Parsons. The southern gospel song Sweet Beulah Land was composed by Square Parsons back in 1973 but was not recorded until 1979, and it later became the number one Southern Gospel singer and received the Singing News Fan Award Song of the Year in 1981. Sweet Beulah Land has been recorded by several other artists over the years, including Carol Robertson, the Chuck Wagon Gang, as well as the Gaither Homecoming Choir. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress gives the following definition for the term Land of Beulah. It is the peaceful land in which the pilgrim awaits the call to the celestial city. Here are the Petersons with a live version of Sweet Beulah Land. Beulah Land, I'm 
Angel Band is an American gospel song originally written by a poem that was titled My Latest Son is Sinking Fast by Jefferson Haskell. The words in this poem were first set to music by J.W. Dodman in his tune book, The Melodonian, way back in 1860. The words to this poem and song being in common meter could be sung to many hymn tunes, but the tune that is now universally associated with them is that by William Batchel Bradbury and was published in Bradbury's Shire of S.S. Melodies in 1862. Bradbury's version of the song was originally titled The Land of Beulah. But Angel Band became widely known in the 19th century, both in folk traditions as well as church hymnals, and in published form by E.G. William Walker's Christian Harmony Book of Hymns in 1866 and has hence thereforth been recorded by many artists over the years, most famously by the Stanley Brothers. Here is the Stanley Brothers version of the song that is actually also on the soundtrack to one of the greatest films of the last 30 years, O Brother Well Art Thou. Actor Leslie Jordan recently released an album of gospel hymns entitled Company's Coming. On this album, Leslie Jordan, along with a who's who of popular American singers, recorded a vast variety of traditional gospel hymns. On Company's Coming, you'll hear duets between Leslie Jordan and singers such as Dolly Parton, Tanya Tucker, Brandy Carlisle, and even Pearl Jam lead singer Eddie Vedder, who joins Leslie Jordan on traditional song, The One That Hideth Me. Now this is very likely one of the most unexpected duets in the history of music, but it is a beautiful one nonetheless. Here for yourself. Here is Leslie Jordan and Eddie Vedder with their version of The One That Hideth Me. Will the Circle Be Unbroken is a popular Christian hymn that was written in 1907 by Ada R. Haberson and Charles H. Gabriel. This song is often recorded unattributed and because of its age has lapsed into the realm of public domain, meaning it is no longer under copyright. A reworked version of this song that was intended as a funeral hymn was written by A.P. Carter and released in 1935 by his group, the Carter Family. This version, titled Can the Circle Be Unbroken, uses the same music and the same verse structure of the original, but with different verse lyrics, as well as a modified chorus. This version has been recorded over the years by many musicians, as will the circle be unbroken, including the legendary 1972 performance by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and a Who's Who all-star session of musicians, including Mother Maybell Carter herself, as well as Roy Acuff, Doc Watson, Earl Scruggs, Randy Scruggs, Merle Travis, Pete Oswald Kirby, Norman Blake, Jimmy Martin, and many more.
It also featured the great fiddler Vassar Clements on a company. This may very well be the most listened to version of that song, and it is my personal favorite. So here are the nitty-gritty dirt band Maybell Carter and an all-star cast of musicians with Will the Circle Be Unbroken? That One Show with Brian Combs is brought to you by Thatcher Barbecue Company and is written, produced, and recorded by me, Brian Combs. You can look me up on social media, on Twitter, at That One Show BC, on Instagram, at That One Show with Brian Combs, on Facebook, at That One Show Podcast, and on Patreon at That One Show. So go follow us along on any of those sites and please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, whichever you prefer. And finally, if you are enjoying this show, I ask from the bottom of my heart that you recommend it to at least one other person with whom you feel would enjoy it as well. Until next time, this has been That One Show with Brian Combs. Thank you.